This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Trodosh. I'm Josh Gondelman. Josh, welcome to the show. Listeners, um, I'm sure people who enjoy podcasts uh, have heard Josh's voice before. He is a frequent uh, guest on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He hosts a delightful show called Make My Day, which I caught up on a few episodes this morning, and they did truly make my day. So thank you. Oh my gosh, thank you. That is like truly the kindest compliment because it's like literally <laughs> the premise of the show is in yeah. the name. I like really just wanted to be like, a fun, breezy half hour that makes people feel better on the way out than they came in feeling. And then you also, after uh, writing for some time for John Oliver, you now write and produce for Jesus and Marrow, which I often forget because I kind of just think of your job as being <laughs> like um, like a national resource to like help us all <laughs> feel better. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's so sweet. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm. At, I've been at Jesus and Marrow. This is the third season that um of the Showtime show, and so and I've been with them since they started at Showtime. Since we started, so it's been, yeah, it's been uh, really wonderful. And I, I've just like had really great fortune to go from like dream job to dream job in the past over the past like eight ish years. Amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we wanted to have you on Weirdest Thing because I was like, here's a person who um, is great at talking about interesting facts um, in a Thank in you. a fun way. And we often get accidentally depressing here on Weirdest Thing. I'm looking at Sarah. <laughs> it's mostly She's... me. My 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 beat on this podcast is just like the the saddest thing I learned this week. Also with a little weirdness. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, hey, guess who got polio? Like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. This is also, I would say, by far the most Jewish episode of Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week we've ever had. That's what I was going to say as well. (laughs) Anticipating this, I was like, oh, we should have aired this like during the week of Passover just so we could fully be be maximally Jewish. Oh, yeah. Just charging up. (laughs) (laughs) So on the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, making people's days, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah, would you like to start with your tease? Yeah, I'm going to talk about how uh, chickens sometimes accidentally miss their oviduct and uh, lay a little a little bit of an egg inside their body cavity and other assorted weird egg facts. Weird chicken facts is my beat today. This is not wow. your first weird egg fact rodeo either. No, it's not. I actually <laughs> referred back to the other one because I was like, I don't want to repeat a weird egg fact. <laughs> it really says uh, a lot about you as a as a reporter that you're able to get two full episodes of weirdest thing content out of chicken eggs specifically. Yeah, if anyone Listen. if anyone needs a chicken egg reporter, I'm your gal. 
listeners just listening like, more chicken egg facts? <laughs> All right, Sarah, we get it. <laughs> so sorry. So sorry, listeners. No, I'm intrigued. Josh, how about your tease? Mine is about, my, my fact is about an art heist that still has not been recovered from. Ooh, I love it. I love a good heist. My tease is that I would like to talk about a dog that was genetically engineered to serve as a kitchen appliance. <laughs> All right. Wow. Well, we have to go with that one first, I feel. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. I accept. Okay. And I will say, too, that I... um. I had it in my head, Josh, that this would be a great one to have while you were on because um, I have really enjoyed your uh, comedic references to your dog. Oh, yeah. And- my dog, though. She's <laughs> she's a chubby little pug. She's so cute and so grumpy. She would – if you she couldn't serve as any appliance other than maybe like a paperweight. And even then, <laughs> she is very defiant. She just doesn't have a lot of uh, – She's not very tenacious. <laughs> She's not especially uh, strong. She she has she eats wet food, and I have to cut the wet food up into pieces because she prefers <laughs> chunks to gum, and she won't attack it all as one glob anymore. So. She, she's mostly gums. So, yeah, she could maybe be like a business card holder or a paperweight. But other than that, she is she's not super um, utilitarian. Yeah. As a pet. <laughs> well, this story ended up kind of being um, a little darker than I expected, but I'm going to I'm going to do my best with it. But it is about a, a very utilitarian dog. Um and the long story short here is that um, people bred these small dogs uh, to have like relatively kind of long bodies and like short crooked legs. And they were very strong and very high energy. Um, Charles Darwin actually referenced these pups as an example of genetic engineering where humans, you know, specifically bred um, qualities that would serve them into animals that they were raising. And the reason people did this is so that the dogs could basically power kitchen appliances, which just sounds so wild, um, but I'm going to explain. Um, so back when open fires were our best way of cooking things, uh, the spit was invaluable. As early as the first century BC, people were sticking meat onto spits so that they could turn it and cook it, because otherwise you would get like half of your mammoth was on fire while the other half stayed raw. (laughs) Similar issues. But for hundreds of years, that meant that somebody had to be physically turning the spit. Um, And in medieval kitchens, this was a job for like the lowest of the lowly servant boys, and they would be called the spit boy, which is just... (laughs) (laughs) Which is now, that's now a different thing. Don't Google it. Exactly. I mean, or Google it. Like, if, I don't know what Whatever you're into. Whatever you're into, but, you yeah. know, yeah. Google with caution. <laughs> Google with caution. <laughs> that, I think, is is always good advice. Yeah. Um, or they'd be called, like, Spit Jack, which I, I think implies that they just called all the boys Jack if they worked on the spit. Um, which is <laughs> Joe of... <laughs> Biden was the was their supervisor. <laughs> so like, <laughs> And that is kind of my impression of, like, what medieval Europe was like, that you could just be renamed Jack because you were basically a human rotisserie turner. So anyway, the first mention of the turnspit dog, which was also called the Vernerpater Kerr or Canis Vertigus, Canis Vertigus as in like a dizzy dog, um, <laughs> was in 1576. And it was referred to as the turnspeat. Um 
But most of what we know about them was written down in the 1800s, which was near the end of what was apparently centuries of regular use. So these were dogs. It was a breed of dog, specifically, uh, that had been bred to fit easily into these treadmills that basically looked like the wheels you'd see outside of a mill. Um, But instead of water running through them, there were like cranky dogs running through them. (laughs) And this was a real thing. That's um, so cute. The the cutest little... Oh, my God. I can't get over it. It's really cute. But then if you think about... The more you think about it, the less cute it is, which we'll talk about a little more in a second. But um, there were actually several devices that these dogs could power. Like, they could help mill grain. Really anything that you could attach some kind of, like, treadmill-style gear to, um, they could power. And there was even a patent for a dog-powered sewing machine in the 19th century. Um, Unclear whether anyone actually used that. Um, That is the cutest sweatshop condition I've ever heard (laughs) of. It's like really, really awful implications, but also so cute. Yeah, very, very cute and very tragic. (laughs) Um, So yeah, unfortunately, uh, as, as some listeners may have already guessed, this job totally sucked for the dogs, um, for all the reasons that it had sucked for humans. And and this was really common, so that we know, like, during the period from that first mention we have in the 1500s until the early 1800s, that um, it was kind of like the, the mark of a high-end kitchen was to have at least one turnspit dog. Because if you didn't, that meant that you had a little boy cranking the turnspit, which... Um, you know, maybe it was a little more obvious that that job sucked when it was a tiny human boy. Um, but yeah, uh, according to at least one historian, it was an encounter with a New York hotel's turnspit dogs in the 1850s that inspired Henry Berg to found the ASPCA. So like turnspit dogs uh, apparently were our first instance of realizing that maybe animal cruelty was a thing and not just like what animals were for. And yeah, this feels, I mean, like, obviously there are so many animals that we make do jobs for us that are like, that seem like maybe not what the animals would prefer to be doing. <laughs> totally. like, like even a really fast horse, right? Uh you know, they don't necessarily want to take Paul Revere around <laughs> Revolutionary a War point. Boston. But, like, when you're, when you're, like, when you're putting an animal, like, a foot away from another animal that you're cooking, <laughs> and you're just like, so you're not, we're not going to cook you, we hope, but, like, hey, that's on you, dog. <laughs> if, t- if time get rough, you know, we may, yeah. we may have yeah. to. Well, and, like, they worked really long hours. There's just, in kind of the historical accounts we had that mention turnspit dogs, um, they're always um, referred to as being very suspicious looking and very, like, really easily trained. In in fact, there's some stories about them, like, if, if you were rich enough to have, like, a pair of turnspit dogs so they could trade off during the day. Ooh, like, okay. if you accidentally <laughs> kept one in for too long, it might, like, hop out and be like, my shift is over. Clock it out. <laughs> Going yeah, back home gotta, to the missus. Good for the unioni- unionize the spit dogs. Yeah. <laughs> but it does seem like they were probably treated quite awfully, and it was a, a really grueling job. And they were even bred to be not just energetic, but, like, it sounds like they kind of bred, like, hyperactivity into the dogs so that they would actually like want to run for a long time obviously they were still made to run for longer than they would have liked 
Um, and there are awful stories about like people doing things like throwing pieces of hot coal in there to like try to get them to go faster. But uh, it does seem like they were they were really bred to be dogs that would mostly be fairly content to just run on a wheel all day. Um, and so, yeah, there were uh, actually as early as 1551, people had um, like schematics for steam powered roasting jacks, um, presumably named after the boy named Jack who turned every spit uh, in, in every medieval kitchen. That was in 1551 by... Um, Taki Aladdin in the Ottoman Empire, where generally they were just doing things more sophisticated than making dogs uh, turn their meat. Um, but there was a version patented by an American clockmaker in 1792. And there were also smoke-powered jacks described as early as the 1600s. Um, but a lot of these things were either uh, really expensive or they required kind of like retrofitting your giant old medieval oven <laughs> that so many of these like wealthy houses still had. So I think, you know, one of the reasons that there was that opportunity for the guy who founded the ASPCA to be shocked is that they actually were like much less common in the Americas where the buildings were newer. So people were more likely to be able to like build a chimney to accommodate, you know, a steam powered jack um, versus in Europe where maybe it was just simpler to, to keep the dogs running. Um <laughs> I feel like that's like one of those building codes where like you see it grandfathered in, right? Where yeah. you're like, oh yeah, this is a new building. You can't have spit dogs in here. Or if it's like a really, it's a really old building, they're like, we're going to do these renovations, but we're going to do it so we can keep our spit dogs. Because otherwise it's going to be a pain in my ass to install a steam power jack. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it, it wasn't until like the late 18th century that these and other solutions, including this jack that had like a wind up clockwork mechanism, um, which seems really like wildly complicated for just like making sure your meat doesn't burn. Um, those became accessible enough, uh, you know, again, as we got closer to the turn of the uh, 19th century, that people started to replace their dog treadmills. But yeah, just a little bit more <laughs> about turn spit dogs, which I think. Um, are a beautiful and terrible human invention, like many dog breeds that exist today. Um, they weren't just relegated to the kitchen. The lords and ladies of the house would actually use them as, like, living foot warmers at church on Sundays. Oh, my God. Um, and, which is way cuter than the, the um, running on hamster wheels next to a hot fire thing. Much like, cuter. Yeah. Um, Queen Victoria is said to have kept several of them as pets, which must have seemed really quirky. Um, but even though she set lots of trends, that is not a trend that took off. They were generally considered ugly and mean, which I have to assume is because people kept making them run on hot treadmills that smelled like meat. Yeah, you can't, <laughs> you can't blame a dog with a, who, like a, a line cook dog for being a little surly. <laughs> exactly. I'd be angry too. Yeah. yeah. So once they became obsolete as kitchen utensils, they just quickly disappeared. Um, and so they're considered extinct now, which is really funny because dog breeds aren't distinct species. So calling them extinct is is kind of a misnomer. It's it's like how like cabbage, kale, broccoli, kohlrabi, Brussels sprouts, and a whole bunch of other plants are actually one species. So if we stopped eating cabbage and it disappeared, it wouldn't really be extinct. Like the makings of cabbage would still exist in the DNA of those other varietals. And so like similarly, any extinct dog breed is just one where we don't have proof that like a pure descendant of that exact lineage is still around. But generally speaking, 
like there's always some idea of like what modern dogs they're really closely related to um and that sort of thing i do have um one <laughs> picture of a um there's a taxidermied turnspit dog this is the last known specimen god i'm so afraid wait it's like dogs, a, a one old like. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Sarah. No, I was just going to say, I feel like the taxidermy dog is either going to be like, that looks just like a living dog or like, dear God, that is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, this looks like a wolf that someone pan seared for half an hour. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. I am attempting to share screen and <laughs> here's the dog. Oh, oh I think it's cute. <laughs> oh yeah. God. Wait, it's so much... What is the scale there? It looks so much more petite than I was picturing. Oh, definitely very petite. Like the wheels were not um were not large. Um kind of like terrier sized, I yeah. would, I would say. Oh my god. Um and a lot of the kind of like modern dogs it's thought to be related to are terriers. <laughs> that picture, which I will post on popside.com slash weird, um there's a great episode of uh, Kitchen Sisters, uh, an awesome podcast talking about turnspit dogs from a few years ago. And the historian they talked to about that taxidermy was like, it's clearly lovingly done. Like there are flowers in the like shadow box that it's in. The box is painted. Um, but it was maybe their first attempt to taxidermy. <laughs> Ooh, okay. not, not very well done. <laughs> lovingly done, but poorly executed. Yeah. Sure. So it's hard to know exactly what they look like, except that that was like their size. They were a, a squat sturdy but like petite dog um also just like you know extinct dogs in general um or extinct breeds again like a, a dog breed being extinct a is kind of like a weird concept yeah <laughs> a right dog. right limited edition discontinued a, de- a dead dog. stock dog <laughs> yeah um but there were a couple that i found um, that I thought were really interesting because it really speaks to like how dog breeds, um, you know, go away when there was some really specific purpose we were breeding into them that becomes obsolete. So one example is the Belgian Mastiff, which was this massive dog, like all Mastiffs are. Uh, but it was used to pull carts in Belgium and the Netherlands until the 20th century, like a little horsey. And then around World War II, I guess other countries started making fun of Belgium for having dogs pull around um their groceries and they stopped using them for that that so this begs the question like you said a little they like a little horse like did they not know about horses in belgium (laughs) i really don't know it might have been like it was it was just the right size maybe yeah a horse is a little too big for your groceries but a dog could be exactly right you know all right right. it was like a you know a a milkman's cart would be pulled by i'm just I'm just saying, like, I guess the way we treat animals, this is what it's reminding me, is the way we treat specific animals is kind of arbitrary, right? Like, which right. ones we we assign labor to and which ones we treat as pets. So maybe in Belgium, they just, their little horses, like, lived in the house with them and would sometimes sleep I in their so. beds if they were very permissive. And, uh, and the dogs were the ones that they gave all the jobs to until someone was like, you got to switch this up. Your your pet horse that that you let <laughs> sleep by the fireplace, this thing could be dragging your cart around town. <laughs> you got it all backwards. Instead of this team of dachshunds you have on a rickshaw. <laughs> well, and then one other um, defunct breed of dog I found that was really interesting. I, di- I didn't write the name down, but there are a, lo- a lot of the quote-unquote extinct breeds are um, hunting dogs who were just bred 
to hunt really specific things. And like one of them, um, probably more than one of them, the reason it was so specific is that they wanted a dog that was really good at silently sniffing out a particular kind of prey, but not actually hunting it. Like those were the dogs that found it and they needed to do it really stealthily because then they would be like, all right, now other dog go hunt that thing that hasn't yet realized there are dogs around. And like wow. people are absurd. Just breed one dog to do that whole thing. Yeah. You know. The, the, that was the, the snitch collie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just like, I'm not I'm, I'm not saying nothing, but uh, if you're you looking for way. the, yeah, if you're looking for a pheasant, uh, <laughs> I've heard some things. <laughs> So, yeah, that is, um, you know, a brief overview of the um, the Turnspit dog, the Dizzy dog. Um, I I would love to have one as a foot warmer. I think they it sounds like they're probably really smart, industrious little dogs. And, um, you know, I'm really glad that, like, eating shawarma doesn't involve, like, a dog having I mean, imagine if everywhere you went in, in New York, like every shawarma cart was just there was a little dog just like going in circles outside. Like tragic, yes. Would it make the streets of New York a little more adorable? Maybe. Also, yes, yeah, for sure. I feel like that is like not it, it would be like akin to the bodega cat, right? Like yeah. it feels like there's there are openings in New York institutions for other kinds of animals. A shawarma dog, a <laughs> bodega cat, a uh, a deli bird. Like <laughs> you get all sorts of, you know, a, like a hot dog cart parakeet. <laughs> well, I also think like the only thing that it would take to make this um, a much more humane practice is to just have a ton of of dogs. Yeah, they like, just go as long as they want and then Yeah, just and then out. another one pops in. Yeah, it it could be a fun activity. Yeah. That's yeah. What I'm saying. Yep. I know dogs who would love to run in circles for an hour, just like burn <laughs> off all that energy. There's my my dog as I said before, just very old, very lazy. <laughs> she would absolutely not be able to resist just trying to eat the meat that she was assigned to cooking. <laughs> Perhaps a good foot warmer though. Maybe, a yeah. great Maybe that's foot warmer. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. She would she'd be great at half of this job. <laughs> well, just a very specific. You know, it's like the hunting dogs that divide up the mm-hmm. labor. She's mm-hmm. right. she's just got the foot warmer part She'd covered. be the foot warmer. She wouldn't <laughs> I mean, I guess she could do it in church as a uh, as like a vocation, but she is a Jewish dog. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little too much standing, I think, in synagogues to have a, a foot warmer be useful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you're up, you're down, you're you're startling your dog who just kind of got a good snore going. Oh, she snores really loud, so she would additionally be bad for yeah, a religious setting. Like Jewish sinuses. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just she's got like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's 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 a problem. <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more facts. Okay, we're back. And uh, Josh, why don't you talk to us about art heists? Okay. So this is my favorite thing. I hope this isn't too redundant with information people already know, because there have been other podcasts and books about this, but this is like my favorite fact. And it's one that I kind of like retained as a kid and resurfaced in my brain as an adult, which is there's a museum. I'm from Massachusetts, and we, we went when I was a kid on a field trip to the 
Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And in the museum, there, this is a little history of the museum to start with. Uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner was born in New York in the 1840s. Uh, her, she moved to Boston with her husband. He died in 1898, and she started doing this thing they'd always planned, which was to start a museum. So you can see, like, what kind of financial bracket they were working in. If they were like, they weren't like, honey, should we have a garden? It was just like, hey, babe, you know what I was thinking? Let's do a museum. So. <laughs> So he died, and she starts um, getting this museum ready. And so they had been all over the world and acquired art. Uh, I again, I when you're when it's the 1800s, mid 1800s, and you're just like acquiring art from other <laughs> countries. I don't really want to like vouch for that process <laughs> as being uh, ethical or fair. However, what the 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 end result was that she built this. Um, this had this mansion built basically as a museum and it's just full of all the art that she loved um and and it's like the art itself i have the i have the web page open be, um because the art is like not consistent uh in any way like it's from all different countries there are like paintings uh there are there are like artifacts and it's it's organized just by like how she liked it, like, how much she liked different stuff. She was like, I think these look good together. And she was not, uh, I believe, not, like, trained in curating art. But she did, uh, she was very specific. So when she died, she was like, I'm going to leave, I want this to be a museum forever. I'm leaving this in, in a trust. But one of the conditions is that you can't move anything, which... It's like visiting, like, a, a grandparent's house where everything, you know, it's like, that's the room you don't sit in, even though there's a couch. Like, everything <laughs> just stays, and there's, like, a picture of your grandparents, and they're very young, and, and just uh, nobody moves anything. Nobody touches anything. There's just, like, a glass jar full of seashells for some reason. Um, so th- this is this is all fine and good. She was just like, keep it like it is. Uh, then... In 1990, so, oh, oh, yes, okay, so I'll just tell the story fairly linearly. In 1990, the night of St. Patrick's Day, there oh, was... Oh, no. I know. I know. Okay. St. Patrick's Day in Massachusetts, nothing good can happen. St. Patrick's Day in Boston is <laughs> ah! chaos. Oh, no. Um, It is... So, the night of St. Patrick's Day, two robbers came in, I believe, dressed as police. Um... And they stole what the FBI has valued at over $500 million worth of art, including, yeah, including one of 32, uh, or excuse me, one of 34 known Vermeer paintings. The concert was one. The only seascape of Rembrandt's, uh, which is called The Storm in the Sea of Galilee, uh, sketches, a Chinese goo, I think I'm pronouncing that right, which is like a, a... Cera- I think it's ceramic. Excuse me. It is a, a bronze vessel. Excuse me. Um, so just all the stuff stolen, never recovered. Um, the case is open. The museum has a uh, has a ten million dollar reward for information leading to the recovery of this art, which obviously hundreds of millions of dollars of artwork. I believe it stands as the largest unsolved art heist in history. But the 
the the fact that I love that was so fascinating as a child and that it is so fascinating now is that where the art was is empty. The robbers cut canvases out of their frames to just take them with them. Those frames remain empty on the wall of the museum. Yeah. So, like, you go into this museum and there's – it looks like it's vaguely under construction um, (laughs) because because it's gone. And so there have been – 30 years of investigations and i i really want to shout out the uh the podcast last scene which was a a joint venture between wbur the boston's public radio station and um the boston globe and they they go down all these kind of rabbit holes of like maybe it was this this segment of the boston mafia maybe it was whitey bulger maybe it was these other criminals from you know international art thieves that hit this museum knowing that on saint patrick's day like you know midnight to 2 a.m on sunday night after saint patrick's day was saturday into i mean saint patrick's day is kind of a state of mind in boston like some people i think are (laughs) constantly it's constantly saint patrick's day but they go hard and um so they they seized upon this chaos. Oh, it was also there were thoughts about whether it was an inside job, whether one of hmm. the two night watchmen was involved, and all these leads have come up empty, as are the frames on the wall of this museum that you can go and see, which I think is like that's pretty fun. Like obviously you want to see Rembrandt's only seascape, but. If you can't see Rembrandt's only seascape, don't throw up just another painting there and and eliminate the history of this art heist. Leave it empty and just be like, no other paintings. <laughs> because I was that was say, oh, how f- oh how fun for the the people who pulled this art heist that there Very is a, fun. a permanent tribute. A yeah. lasting legacy. Yeah. Because now it's like it's both an art museum and also a museum about this one specific heist. <laughs> yes. It's an art heist museum as well as an art museum. <laughs> I yeah. love that. The Isabella Stewart Gardner slash Ocean's Eleven Museum <laughs> in the Fens. Um, and yeah, so th- so I'm like obsessed with the heist in general, but also with the fact that they keep that because of this charter. And in the... Um, uh, on the website to the museum, because I remember hearing on the tour when I was whatever eleven years old that it that it was the charter of the museum that that said that they couldn't replace the art. And on the website, they kind of there's a whole section devoted to the theft because it's such a big deal. And I imagine it like drives at least some of the visitors uh, to to the museum. But it it says, let me find it because they they're a little gentler. About <laughs> the reason that the they leave the frames open, I can't find it. I, when I was looking at it the other day, it said something like the single largest proper single largest property theft in the world. They claim on the website it took eighty one minutes. There's there's pictures on the website of one of the guards kind of duct taped to a a pipe downstairs. And then empty frames. Today, empty frames remain hanging in the museum as a placeholder for the missing works and as symbols of hope awaiting their return, which I think is kind of a, a oh, sweet, that's a sweet way to say that. Right. Um, yeah, it's kind of like the... Much sweeter than this dead lady made us promise we would never yeah, move these frames. This dead, this dead old lady was like, don't move anything. I have it the way I like it. My ghost will know. Um 
And, and it is like you brought up Rachel at the beginning of the podcast Passover, and it's kind of like the idea of like the the bitterness and the sweetness at once of like hope for the return, <laughs> but also a reminder of like whoopsie. <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, I've been thinking since you, uh, you mentioned that there would be an art heist involved in your fact, I was like, what, what does happen with stolen art, right? Because you can't Mm -hmm. just like, go sell it to anybody. Yeah. People are looking for that stolen art. Um, You gotta sell it to the right people. (laughs) You do have to sell it to the right people. Yeah. And yeah, I definitely I, I read a few pieces about how, you know, it, unsurprisingly, there are rich people who are less scrupulous than others about, you know, some some rich people love the the brag of having some hidden stolen art in their home mm-hmm. that only their, you know, uh, close friends and associates can know about. But I also was reading that it's like stolen artworks that are recovered. It's often found that they were basically just used as like collateral mm-hmm. in like, um, you know, in mobs and you know various criminal underbellies where it's just like yeah i got i got the goddamn mona lisa so you can hold it while i go do this thing yep and then i'll come back and take the mona lisa back and like what a bummer that uh, so much stolen art is apparently just being used as like an as like iou markers so one thing that that was interesting in the podcast last scene is that they really make the point that like you we there's this image in our in the public imagination of like the art thief as like a a gentleman criminal right <laughs> like an appreciator of art who's like mm-hmm, I shall have the Vermeer for my own and then they're like they're like sad to have to sell it to like a fence to you know to like yeah. to get that money and and have the art they're like mm-hmm, it's beautiful treat it well but like in real life it's just like whoever it's the same kind of person that would do any kind of robbery and i don't want to like by that i don't mean like anything derogatory other than it's it's not like an art appreciator it is like the same kind of person who would like rob a bank but they're like oh i instead of getting the money directly we know how to get this art like we know somebody on the inside or we know a security vulnerability um and and so it's it's like a very funny where it's just like it's the same mob that steals other things (laughs) Like this, yes, there's not like a secret like art mafia. (laughs) Right. And also then like, you know, there's always the concern that the stuff is just going to be destroyed once it's more risky than it is. Sure. Um, So, yeah, like if you're going to if you're considering doing crime, just like consider doing it with something other than a priceless artwork. Well, my (laughs) my favorite art crime is I just watched that documentary Made You Look about oh, the art forgeries. Yeah. And I think if you can forge a, a priceless work of art and sell it to a rich person, or, you know, through a gallery to a rich person, I think they shouldn't be able to prosecute you. I think you win fair and square. Yeah, so that's... If, you can, if you can trick someone into that, especially if you can trick someone who, like, verified the painting, like, yep. this is a legit... What I, I don't know enough about art to insert insert yep. an artist name here who you can forge effectively. I yeah I feel the same way, especially the rich person. Like jokes on you, Absolutely. buddy. Well, Sorry. In, in that in that movie, there there were people that were very mad that they felt defrauded out of eight million dollars that they spent on a Rothko and uh, on, on a Rothko that turned out to be forged. And nobody spends eight million dollars on a painting when they have a net worth of. Eight million and fifty dollars. Like they're not. 
they're not like, oh no, how do we pay our cell phone bills? <laughs> they we got screwed on this Rothko deal. So like I think if you can get, you know, if you're selling a painting for $1.2 million and it's you trick the people that are supposed to verify, I think you don't get to bribe the people that verify it. This is my rule. But I think if you trick them, then it's it's um no no take backsies. It's fair and square. There's a um, I think that's fair. There's a museum of art fakes in Vienna that I have been to, and there's no Ooh. there's no like quote unquote real art in it. It is just about art forgery. It is incredible. I'm a big that fan rules. of like Great. weird museums. If you're ever in Vienna, if ever if ever we can go anywhere ever again, go to Vienna <laughs> and go to the museum of art fakes. I want to do a fake version of that museum somewhere. <laughs> I want to open up like... Would it be real art where it's fake fakes? Oh, whoa. Yeah, Yeah, that is awesome. Where you're just like, these are fakes, wink. These are incredible. And it's like, yeah, that's because Picasso did them. (laughs) But I love, love art crimes. Yeah, we had a... We had an episode of Weirdest Thing a couple years ago where I talked about this young female artist who... Uh, claimed to have like uncovered the secrets of the Renaissance masters and mm-hmm. offered to teach uh, these famous male painters how to effectively copy them. Yeah. Um, and she ran a great scheme because the thing is that when the men took her courses and still sucked at painting and weren't as good as painting as she was, her secret for copying the Renaissance masters was just that she was a better painter than the, that <laughs> rules. the guys were. Yeah, see, um, that's a great and, scam. And no one wanted to admit it. So they would all just be like, yeah, I learned a lot. It was great. Definitely, definitely pay her to I'm, do the same thing. I'm like Monet now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Because that is, it's like an unprovable scam. Especially yeah. because she's so good at painting. It's yeah. like a, it's like a, the reverse of that popular, that axiom, right? This is those who can, don't teach. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with one more fact. Hey, weirdos, it's Corinne, the editor-in-chief here at Popular Science, jumping in to let you know about our brand new digital exclusive magazines. These quarterly issues feature our award-winning science journalism, the very best gadgets, and of course, journeys down science's weirdest rabbit holes. But being an official Popular Science subscriber gets you so much more than that. Our desktop and mobile apps have a catalog of more than 15 years of back issues. My favorite new feature? Siri or Google Assistant will read you the magazine. That means you can listen to PopSci like you would listen to a podcast. To get in on the action, go to PopSci.com slash subscribe. Our very first digital issue, which is all about the science and necessity of finding chill, is already there waiting for you to dig in. Sarah, with some egg facts. Some egg facts. So I do I do just have to start by saying I'm about to tell you basically like <laughs> what I'm about to tell you <laughs> will change your life. It won't with change regard your life. To eggs. But I did feel a little like I was slandering chickens because I'm just gonna talk to you guys about how all the all the ways it can go wrong. Like how many ways can you lay an egg badly? But I'd just like to set the record straight and say that chickens are really, really good at laying eggs. <laughs> 
<laughs> they they lay most of them lay like more than 300 eggs a year which is like a crazy production rate if you produced an egg every single day of your life holy crap and like the vast majority of them will be absolutely perfect and beautiful and wonderful but some of them are not so don't let big chicken intimidate you sarah <laughs> my printer, sorry my printer just made a noise i have a new printer and the printer just made a noise and i was like the chick, the chickens crap. have hacked into the mainframe. Yeah, it's gonna print out for me. Like... Yeah, it just is like <laughs> a piece of paper comes out. Okay, um, okay. So like, we're gonna start with least, least to most wrong. So the least wrong an egg can be is like it's just like missing a yolk, or it has too many yolks. So like double yolks eggs, those are pretty common. You can mm-hmm. get more. The Guinness World Record is five yolks inside a nine-inch wide egg. I don't. I hope that that's like long ways and not wide because that's a rough is, time for the chicken. That's, no, that's a like chicken ostrich egg? size. Yeah, that's that what point. I was thinking. I mean, it, it must be I a think bigger, it must mean... It must be a, like an ostrich egg or something. Like, it, it must be something big. Or like kiwis. Kiwis, mm. by the time kiwis lay their eggs, they can't walk. Great. Oh. Kiwis are all... They're like all eggs. It's all egg. Oh, oh the, um, so They're a weird wait, bird. Is the, is the world record attributed to the bird or the person who like found it? Because I think the bird <laughs> the deserves bird. most of the credit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. really it's really to the egg, but defi- I don't know if you know the name <laughs> of the chicken <laughs> or the ostrich or whatever it was. Um, there's a record that the, or there's a rumor that the real record is like nine yolks in an egg, but it's it's unconfirmed. The Guinness World Record, people weren't there to see it. Um, they, were, they were like, that's just nine eggs in one bowl. We, we can tell. <laughs> <laughs> we cannot verify this. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's basically for like the same the same way like humans have like twins or triplets or quadruplets or whatever like that. That's basically the uh, the general idea. You can also get um, fairy eggs, um, which are also called fart eggs, dwarf <laughs> eggs, wind eggs, or a lot of other names that I thought were too rude to mention here. Wow. But they're basically like little teeny tiny eggs, like like the little eggs you get for Easter that are chocolate, but a real egg. Um, sometimes they're all whites, but sometimes they're just little tiny eggs. Um, there's like weird shell abnormalities. You can get like really rough ones, like sandpapery. And oh. that's if your chicken, I know, if the chicken deposits too much calcium in the shell, it gets real mm. bumpy, which again, I mean, laying an egg can't be comfortable and definitely laying a sandpapery one isn't. Yeah. Um, some eggs are wrinkly, which happens when there's like a problem partway through, like the eggshell breaks or something, but then sometimes the hen can like patch it back together basically, and so they end up wrinkly. I've seen that before. Like, I'm sure, like, not a profoundly wrinkly egg because it wouldn't have been sold to me if so, but I've definitely seen some eggs that I would describe as, as having wrinkly. a wrinkly quality to them. Wow. Yeah. Um, God, and then, chicken- like, Chicken buttholes are amazing. <laughs> they are. They are. Nature I once is made incredible. A, I once made a comment offhand about an egg coming out of a chicken butthole, and the people I was with made fun of me, being like, Rachel, they don't poop the eggs. And I was so, they so effectively embarrassed me that I was like, oh gosh, you're right. And then later on, I was like, no, they do. There's they one do. hole. Yeah, it's There's a cloaca, right? It's yeah, their it's butt. It's a cloaca. Yeah, yeah they do. Just because it's not strictly a butthole doesn't mean it's not their butthole. Right. It's a butthole Who's plus. Just- Who's to say when it's being used as a butthole? And like maybe an egg comes out a butthole, or maybe it's an egg hole when an egg's coming out. This is a matter for philosophers. 
It's more of a philosophy question than a science question. It truly is. It's the next great chicken or the egg question. Mm -hmm. Um, So like the, okay, so then like the color of the shell can vary a lot and that depends on like the stage at which the color gets deposited. Like you can get blue eggs or green eggs. And um, if they're blue or green, that's like the whole shell all the way through is blue or green. If they're brown, you can actually wipe off the color when they're freshly laid, which is crazy. Like they've just been painted like little Easter eggs. Wow. Um, That sounds really fake. Yeah, it seemed not real. I Googled (laughs) it a lot because I was like, there's no way that that's true. But it seems to be true. Where I'm from, they they sell like the the eggs you generally get are brown eggs and they like mm-hmm. the in Massachusetts and they there's some like the egg council or what whoever <laughs> sold them had there was like a slogan of encouraging you to get the brown eggs because they're locally produced um really the, that's yeah. so interesting when i was a kid i remember my or or it's just something my dad made up which is so <laughs> weird i like i kind i want to google it but i also like don't i can't face the fact that like <laughs> did my dad just make up this slogan for eggs but i think it's from like when he was a kid and they, and they would like push you to buy like locally mm. produced brown eggs that's funny people mm-hmm. um i already said this egg fact but in another podcast alarmingly <laughs> but um if you a lot of people think that brown eggs are like more organic or like more natural eggs but they are not the color of a of an egg is just dependent on what breed of chicken pooped it and yes they did poop it um, there's also lash eggs, which are truly horrifying. I encourage you to never, ever Google it. They are like Ooh. egg-shaped clumps of goop that happen when the, like, oviduct gets infected. So that's real nasty. No, but, thank you. But the, uh, the actual fact I have to share with you today, I learned because our tech editor, uh, Stan Horacek, tweeted about his wife asking him whether they had any lube on hand because she needed to stick her fingers up the chicken's butt slash cloaca to see if an egg had gotten stuck. Uh, and that turned Stan's out Stan's to... wife is a superhero, She's incredible. Sarah, Sarah Horjak. So I got, I asked Stan a bunch of questions and he was like, you know what? I don't know the answer to these questions, but Sarah would. So <laughs> I'm just going to connect you guys. So about an hour after he connected us on email, I got this incredible response where she was just like, let me tell you about all the weird egg stuff that I, I know. So half of the facts you've already heard are from actually from Sarah. Um, so their chicken, Cleo, she thought was egg bound, which is like exactly what it sounds like. Like the egg gets stuck inside the hen. And there's some solutions to that, including um, I found this advice on the Internet. So I don't know how legit this is. But supposedly if you're if your hen is is egg bound, you can just give her a nice little warm bath. You just want to relax her and soothe her. And then you, you put some KY jelly inside the cloaca to just kind of like lube it on up. And sometimes I guess that that solves the problem. Um, but Cleo, as it turns out, was not egg bound, sadly. So she had something that's called egg yolk peritonitis. Um, I couldn't figure out like why this happens. But as I said in my tease, like basically, chickens can start laying little bits of egg, like one without a complete shell or like one that's ruptured, like often it's just like part of a yolk or something. And it just sort of goes into their body cavity like it just it almost literally slips through some kind of gap between the ovaries and the oviduct and it just sort of goes into the body i'm not even really clear how all the diagrams are just like egg starts here and then it just (laughs) 
It just exits this little loop. We don't actually know what's inside of a chicken. No one's ever looked. It's just so. it's just a <laughs> big old tell. cavity. <laughs> um. So yeah, and but then like because it's just like a a loose yolk, that's bad for the chicken. So like a lot of the times they get a really serious bacterial infection. Um. And it's like it's hard to catch stuff like this early because i don't keep chickens i hope to keep chickens someday because i think that their happy little clucking sounds are absolutely adorable but because chickens are like prey species they hide if they're feeling sick or like feeling crappy so like mm-hmm. it's very hard to to tell when your chicken is is feeling sad or off um but also oh, they get shy i know it's so sad they like you know they just want to be strong um <laughs> Right, they never, they ch- never let him see a cry. That's an old chicken <laughs> mantra. Um, uh, but weirdly, sometimes, so the the yolks can also like solidify into like a mass. Um, Stan said that he thought it was from like their body heat. I don't know if that's true. I could not verify like why they solidify, but they act basically like a like a tumor, but made of solidified eggs. Um, and that's what happened to Cleo, Cleo the chicken. So um, they're gonna find one of those inside me someday. For Cleo. I know. Um, so yeah, if you catch it early, there is a treatment, um, which is that you give them hormonal injections or an implant. So there's a little thing called a deslorelin implant i'm sure i'm not saying that right but it's like it's like kind of like birth control but for some animals yeah so it's like it's like implanon but humans like sorry no it's kind (laughs) of like it's not for humans don't give it to humans it's kind of like implanon is for humans but it releases um gonadotropin releasing hormone and you can use it to suppress fertility in like male dogs and ferrets and also male or female cats and this is just a thing that you can get. I mean, like, I think most of the time you wouldn't get it from your vet, but, like, this is a thing. There's animal birth control, and I had no idea. That's not just, like, spaying or neutering them. Um, anyway, vets prescribe it off-label to chickens. It's not really supposed to wow. be for them. But if you give them this little implant, it suppresses their egg laying. So you can, like, stop that process, and then you can, like, treat the infection if you get it really early. And at least one chicken blogger, there's a lot of chicken bloggers on the internet, at least one of them successfully treated her hen this way. Um, But it seems pretty rare. And sadly, Stan told me that that Cleo the chicken will not survive her egg yolk peritonitis. I know. So surprise, this was a sad... I know, I'm so sorry. It turned out to be sad in the end. This, this you episode got me is again. Just, so, so sorry. I just want to dedicate the episode to Cleo the chicken because without her, we would not have these facts. Can we get I'm so sorry. R.I.P. Play, play as much Sarah McLaughlin as we can afford to play here, Jess. Mm-hmm. 29 Maybe. seconds worth. Yeah. In the wings of wings. Oh, God, I'm going to start crying just from that. Yeah. Uh, so those are my egg facts. I, I don't wow. think I have another episode's worth of egg facts, so this is probably <laughs> maybe not about chickens. Yeah, other it's eggs. Time I'm to sure. branch out on the eggs yeah. or other non-egg chicken facts. Yep. So Yeah. Oh God. All right. Well, I'm gonna find one <laughs> now. You've challenged me, and I have to have another egg egg fact or chicken fact episode. Yeah, Great. there are so many other animals that lay eggs. I yeah, feel like yeah, true. you're just scratching the surface. I was picturing when you said the egg inside the chicken cell, until I realized that it was just the yolk, more or less, right, loose in, in their chicken uh, tubes. The I was like, could an egg just hang out inside a chicken until they give birth? Like a live birth? Oh, God, like it just keeps going. 
Yeah, that's what I was worried about. But it sounds like no, right? No. It sounds like it's it's not a fully formed it's, egg yeah. with a shell. Yeah. It's not. But in, that is why kiwis have such big eggs. Because like like most animals that lay eggs do it so you can just like cook them partway. And then yes. put them outside right. your body. But um, kiwis, like they still lay the egg. But the, <laughs> the little baby kiwi develops like almost entirely while it's still inside its mom. So that's why so, they have such big eggs. So like a kiwi could maybe just not they could just do away with the egg part they probably could yeah and they just have an evolution was like you're stuck with this forever wow <laughs> yeah. that's fascinating yeah kiwis are crazy the people and the birds to be honest <laughs> <laughs> all right well what was the weirdest thing we learned this week god i don't know there were a lot of weird things in this one a lot of weird yeah that's true the way we had a lot of a lot of um like tangential weird things. Yep. I think this this may this may be a three way tie this week. I think uh, all three of our facts taught me new things. Me too. Yeah. Is this so, the first time three way tie? Oh no, I've definitely no. pulled this crap. So before. we're we're <laughs> indecisive. <laughs> Sometimes, <huh>? yeah. <laughs> I look. I love it. I don't think there's a reason we don't need to make facts compete. <laughs> no, they're all equally good facts. Yeah. Sometimes facts, yeah. Sometimes it's just the the love of the game. Exactly. <laughs> the game exactly. called science. That's <laughs> <laughs> what we do. Uh, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. This what was a great! What a treat! Thank you for having me. And uh, listeners who don't already definitely check out uh, Make My Day, where facts do not have to compete. No. <laughs> the, the, everything is fully invented. It is. <laughs> It's chaos. It is a a game show where there's only one contestant, so they always win. And the the each week the winning contestant and only contestant wins a one hundred dollar donation to the charity or cause of their of their choice. And uh, it's really fun. It's it, it's the only game show that I know of where no one ever loses, and um, so it's very stress free. That's that's what I strive for. That's what we need right now, honestly. Just, Thank you. Just a zero stress game show. Thank you. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popsi.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popsi.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.